You may have seen this, but a couple of days ago, the University of Chicago released a study where they were asking the questions, what are the effects of 2020 having on the American population? This was part, actually, of a larger study that they've been conducting on happiness in this country since 1972. But as they looked in recent days at what was going on, the study revealed certain things. It revealed, for instance, number one, that people were feeling very happy 14% of the population. It's an all-time low. Since 1972, with all that's going on, with all tragedies like 9-11, with different economic cycles, people have never felt less happy than they do right now in 2020. At the same time, the study showed that 80%, an all-time high, are satisfied with their financial situation. And that was surprising because we are, many of us, struggling in this time, but the study is showing that we're aware of people who are really on the margins, really struggling, and that awareness is making a kind of gratitude for people with what they have, even in 2020. But it, those first two numbers don't really go together because normally our uh, financial satisfaction is, uh, correlates with our happiness, and yet we're at an all-time low of people saying they're very happy, and yet at an all-time high of people saying that they are very satisfied with their financial situation. The study also showed that there is a marked increase in 2020 in feeling anxious, in being short-tempered, and feeling pessimistic about the future. This has got me wondering something. Medical experts are telling us that while COVID-19 is a very dangerous virus, that it is especially dangerous for people with underlying health conditions. That these conditions that some of us have that we learn to manage and we learn to live with on a daily basis outside of this virus, that if we can contract the virus along with these underlying health conditions, it can easily bring us to a tipping point that becomes very dangerous. This virus is dangerous, but it is exposing, in many of the serious cases, underlying health conditions. And I wonder if that's true of the effect of what 2020 is doing on us as people. It's not so much causing problems as it is bringing underlying conditions to the surface and exposing them. I, mean, I know marriages that are in the middle of going through this. It's that things were hard before quarantine, but you were busy enough with work and busy enough with life and able to travel and able to entertain yourself on Netflix enough that these underlying conditions you could sort of manage and work through. But as work is slowed down, as travel's not possible, as you're in the house more and more with one another, these underlying conditions are becoming exposed and it feels like things are becoming harder. It's not that it's causing these things to happen, but these underlying conditions in our relationships are bubbling to the surface and we can't avoid them anymore. I think that that's some of what happening in businesses. I mean, if you were working for DoorDash, congratulations, you are set up for this time. But for many businesses and organizations, they're having to figure out what technology can be useful for them in this time, and they're having to pivot very quickly. Churches are having to pivot very quickly and learn at a rapid pace how technology can work to connect us. It's not that technology was something we were using necessarily to the best of our ability before. It was an underlying condition we weren't necessarily dealing with. We were managing. But 2020s and this pandemic is bringing to the surface underlying conditions. I think that's happening in our society. Inequalities that have been here are being exposed in 2020 and they're coming to the surface. It's nothing new. But these underlying conditions are things that we need to now face because we're at a tipping point. 
And I wonder when we look at our outlook, when we look at our happiness, when we look at our pessimism about the future, is something new happening in 2020? Or like many other things, is this time surfacing some underlying conditions. I mean, take this. In this study, it says that 14% of Americans are now very happy. And this is a, a huge fall off. We were at 30% at the beginning of the year. So the number in these six months has dropped more than in half as we go through this pandemic. But we weren't exactly a bastion of happiness and joy and satisfaction beforehand. Let's not romanticize life before 2020. We might be more grateful for certain things we took for granted before, but when asked the question at the beginning of this year, are you very happy, 70% of people said no. Is this bringing something new that we're not dealing with or is it exposing underlying conditions that have always been here? And when we have to look at that, we're faced in the letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians with a certain uncomfortable truth. And this uncomfortable truth that is evident in the passage that we've looked at today is that the author of Ephesians experiences a degree of suffering that even in 2020, most of us cannot comprehend. Paul experienced isolation. He experienced imprisonment. He says that he is in prison in the passage we just read while writing this letter. He experiences ostracization. He loses any of the social standing he had as a Pharisee beforehand. He loses any monetary wealth that he would have had beforehand. He is beaten. He is mocked. He is tortured. He experiences suffering in his life that very few of us can imagine. And yet, there is this sense of optimism of purpose and of joy in his life, in his work, and in the letter to the Ephesians that is in marked contrast to the unhappiness and the pessimism that so many of us are experiencing today. And why is it that someone going through such a hard time can write and talk about this purpose of why he's alive, saying that he knows what he's here to serve, a servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he writes here. I think he's found what C.S. Lewis writes about is joy. Lewis says that so many of us just want to be happy in a moment, but Lewis says that joy is the presence of purpose. It's not just knowing what you do. It's no, knowing why you're here. Or as Martin Luther King said, that a person who doesn't have something worth dying for is not truly alive. That there is an eternal purpose that Paul understands as to why he is here. And I wonder if we can face the underlying conditions of dissatisfaction that we might consider that one of the things that was present before 2020 and is becoming exacerbated today is that we are people who are really busy knowing what we do, but we don't spend much time on why we exist. And those questions might be worth considering right now. Let's look, for example, at the Apostle Paul here, because in these verses, he gives us three different things that he says, this is what my life is about. This is the eternal purpose. This is what it means for me to be a servant of the gospel and to live with the, with the purpose that I have. He says, for example, in verse six, that in Christ, the Gentiles have become heirs of God's grace. As we talked about last week in worship, what he's talking about here is that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been knocked down in Jesus Christ. If you want something worth living for, this isn't a political position. This isn't a partisan position. This is a kingdom position. 
This is an understanding that if we don't have a common understanding of who we are as one human family in Christ, in God's love, that our divisions will continue to just rip and tear at us and divide us one from another. But as we understand that we are heirs, he said, well, who are heirs? Heirs are people who inherit Heirs are people that when we pass along what we have, they are part of the family. Paul's saying there are no longer people who have an inside track to God. There are no longer insiders and outsiders. And therefore, when we understand that we're family, that we are heirs together, then that means that all of our diversity is just a richness among a common backdrop. I mean, think, for example, of what it means to be family. I have two daughters. My two children could not be more different in certain ways, in their personalities, in the traits that they have, in the outlook on the world. And I wouldn't change a thing about the uniqueness of either of them. Our family is so much richer because of the unique differences that they bring into our lives. And yet, the reason it brings richness is because they are my children. That diversity brings a richness among the backdrop of family. And Paul is saying, and in these divisive times, how important is this for us to hear? That this is the kind of work that is kingdom work, eternal work, work that is bigger than any of our lives that he's giving himself to. What would it mean for you and I in the church today? What would it mean for covenant to be challenged by that kingdom vision? What would it mean for us to work for that, each and every one of us here today? In verse 8, he talks about a second thing. He says in verse 8 that he also has this eternal purpose because living as a servant of the gospel is to bring the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. He says that this is something worth giving your life to. This is a why he exists because he wants people, uh, all people, including those who historically were not in this covenant relationship with God, to understand how loved they are. To understand that our purpose is to be welcoming people, reaching out to people. This has been an especially important thing for me to be thinking about this week as I've reflected on this passage. This is a busy time in the life of a pastor. This is a busy time in in, in being a a head of staff of of a church. And a colleague of mine who's a head of staff of a church in a different part of the country was on the phone with me last week and said, you know, I feel like I need an MBA more than an MDiv. Because the things we're having to work on are something that we didn't even talk about in our training for this. How do you navigate an institution through this? And it is busy and it is challenging. And yet for me, as I've thought about it this week, it's so important for me to remember the heartbeat of my call. And the heartbeat of my call for 20 years from the very beginning is that I remember when the good news became good news to me. And I see in our culture so many people that are laboring under this idea of, look how important I am, look how important I am, look at my GPA, look where I'm involved, look at my resume, look at my job, look at my success, and somewhere in there I'm going to be somebody and seen as somebody in a who's who and the emptiness of that, whether you achieve it or not. And I remember when it became real to me for the first time that God saw all of me and all of my beauty and in all of my incompleteness and in all of my ugliness and told me that I was loved. The idea that I could be called into sharing that and others coming to know that good news, not in some macho evangelism of do you know the secret handshake to get in, but a desire for people to know how truly loved and valued they are has is, is, is been the heartbeat of ministry for me from the very beginning. 
And I know that if I lose touch with that in this era or any other era, that all I am is a busy, stressed out worker. It's important, Paul's saying, not just to know what you do, but to know why. And for all of us, there is this calling, as he writes here, to bring the Gentiles to the boundless riches of Christ. And lastly, he says in verse 10, that he knows his why because he is forming churches that the world might know God's wisdom. That Paul is planting all of these congregations throughout uh, modern-day Asia and modern-day Europe, and yet these churches don't just exist to exist on their own, but he's reminding us that the purpose of the church is to be what we talk about here at Covenant, a love letter from God to the city around us. That is the only value we have. It's been important for us in this time to realize that the natural instinct of an institution is to circle the wagons when crisis hits and to just try to get through it. And if we do that here at Covenant, we might endure through 2020 and all that it has to offer to us, but I'm not certain we're gonna do so with any integrity because we're not gonna know why it is that we're doing what we do. And we need to continue to do what we've seen so far from our leadership, which is continuing to stretch out and even to try to find new and more creative ways of loving this city and letting them know, as he writes here, what is the wisdom of God. Friends, as you hear this today, I know that 2020 is a difficult year, but it's also an important year because it's going to bring some of these underlying issues, underlying conditions to the surface. And one of the underlying conditions for us as a people has been our dreams for our life are far too small. They're about us and our families and our children and our jobs and our goals and our initiatives. And Paul here is a servant of something larger than himself. For some of you worshiping today, you're gonna hear this and you're gonna go, I know what the call is on my life and I need to recommit myself to it. I know what this area is that I'm supposed to step into and I need to remember my heartbeat for things. And if so, I encourage you to take this time and to move towards that eternal call as we see here in Paul. But for those of you who are sitting there going, dude, I don't even know what that would look like. I'm not even certain I know what you're talking about right now. And where we begin is by asking God, what does it mean for me? A few years ago, a member of this church, a good friend, came walking into my office and done well in his work, had good friendships, and had lived a, a really wonderful life. But he said, you know, he was at a stage where he was wanting more. And he said, what am I supposed to do? And I said, well, what do you think God's calling you to? He said, I don't know, but like if you've got a kind of a plan or an idea or an objective, well, what we should do? And I said, well, what if we just started by asking God what you were supposed to do? What's the bigger thing you're supposed to be living for? What, how God wants to fill that God-sized void in your life? And I knew he left my office disappointed. A few weeks later, I had an email from him and he said to me, I left your office disappointed. I wanted a plan for what God wanted to do with my life. But I did start praying as you and I prayed together. Lord, what do you want? I want to follow your call. I want to be aware. And he said, after three weeks, I've stopped praying it because my life is overflowing with things. And years later, those are still the things guiding his path. Sometimes when we don't know what the call of God is, it's not because there's no call. It's because we haven't taken the time to ask and listen. If we take this seriously, then 2020 is not going to be just a hard year. It is a hard year, and we will always look back on it as a hard and difficult year. But we'll also be a year that we look back on it and realize it's one of the most important. 
if we face these underlying conditions and seek God's will for why we're here. May we do so. Amen.